So I showed it to the doctor, and well, she said it's smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about variable fonts. What are they? How do they differ from regular fonts? And how can they help in the design and performance of our websites? We talked to a font of knowledge on the matter, Jason Permental. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In Brand Illustration Systems, Drawing a Strong Visual Identity, Yihui Liu outlines her process for developing a strong brand illustration system as part of an adaptable and effective way to build a company's visual brand. If you've ever wondered how a brand could be strengthened and enhanced by the careful use of illustration, this is an article for you. In a post in partnership with DigitalOcean, Susan Skacker asks what happens if your site proves so popular that a surge in traffic takes it down. She looks at some of the ways from front end to back of optimizing your site and configuration to best handle peaks in traffic without ending up with egg on your face. In a new Smashing TV webinar, which are now freely open to everyone, Rachel Andrew builds a layout using CSS Grid and Flexbox. Follow along in real time as a CSS expert shows how she'd approach each problem, and you might be surprised in what you learn. In Web Design and Development Advent Roundup for 2019, we look at some of the websites that appear at this time of year to share daily updates for designers and developers. Check the list twice to find out which you might be missing this holiday season. And in Should Your Portfolio Site Be a PWA, Susan Skacker asks if your professional portfolio site should be taken off the back burner and turned into a progressive web app. Could it be earning you more quality business with just a little bit of tender loving care? Suzanne explains why it might be worth your time. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He's a design strategist, UX leader, technologist, expert in web typography, and invited expert on the W3C Web Fonts Working Group. He writes, speaks, and works with teams and brand owners on how to set type better on digital platforms. He's spoken with organizations like Adobe, Audible, Condé Nast, GoDaddy, IBM, and given presentations and workshops at conferences all over the world. He's clearly an expert in web typography, but did you know he represented Sweden at Lawn Croquet in the 1984 Olympic Games? My smashing friends, please welcome Jason Parmental. Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm smashing, especially after that intro. So I wanted to talk with you today, obviously about web typography, because that's really your thing. You are a, a real expert with web typography. So about that in general, but in particular, talk a little bit about variable fonts, because I mean, I'm no, I'll be the first to admit I'm no typography expert. So please, I mean, please consider me as uninformed as anyone listening. Uh, don't you can't you cannot patronise me with, with any information about typography. I, I guess we've been, we've had we've had usable web fonts on the web for probably about a decade now. Is that right? Yeah, and actually, um, wasn't it you that started? It was uh, something on Twitter a couple of days ago. It's it was like November 9th in two thousand nine. It's like it's like ten years in two days since Typekit launched. And I know FontDeck was right in the same time frame, and then Google Fonts and Monotype Service not long after. And 
I mean, that was, I had a, a, a beta invite um, that was given to me by um, my friend, John Cianci, who's actually now still a colleague of my wife's at the agency where she works um, to typekit, you know, sometime in 2009. And that was a complete, reinvention of my interest in the web. I mean, it was like nothing short of a revolution for me. I mean, I'd always loved typography um, when I studied it in school, but we couldn't do anything with it on the web for 15 years. So it was, that was pretty amazing. There must be designers working on the web now, having had web fonts for 10 years plus, potentially, there are, there are designers working on the web now who have never designed a site without the ability to select from a, a huge range of typefaces. Yeah, it's, it's true. Nobody, nobody uh, without that experience had to push the pixels uphill in both directions like we did growing up. I mean, you know, it's like cranky old men shaking our fists at the sky. But, <laughs> Those um, are the days. But yeah, it is, it is kind of amazing just with all of the things that have changed on the web the idea that some people never experienced it any other way uh, is is remarkable. So, by the time we got we got web fonts, that was a that was a massive shift in how we started to use typography uh, on the web because we could really start to use typography on the web. There were obviously things things that we could do with uh, web safe fonts, but we were pretty pretty limited uh, to a very a very restricted palette. But there's there's potentially now another big shift, almost as significant perhaps with variable fonts. Yeah. So, I mean, what are variable fonts? Uh, what do they do for us? Where, where do we begin? Um, well, I, th- you know, I always try and start with giving people a frame of reference. And, and so when we think about using fonts on the web, the thing we have to remember is that currently with traditional quote unquote fonts, um, every font is a, is an individual width, weight, slant, you know, variant of that typeface. And for everyone we want to use on the web, we have to load a file. So for a typical website where you're using it for body copy, you're loading usually four fonts, you know, regular, bold, italic, and bold italic. So like all of those things have to get loaded. So each one of those is a little bit of data that has to be downloaded and processed and, and rendered. Um, and so typically what we've done over the years is constrain ourselves to using that very small number of fonts, um, which is actually not particularly great typography practice. Um, and it's much more common in graphic design to use a much broader range. You might use eight or 10 different weights and variants of a typeface and, you know, in a given design. So, um, on the web, we've been very constrained because of performance. And the big difference in a variable font is all of those permutations, those variations, are contained in a single file. And that format is really efficient because what it's doing is storing the regular shape of that character and then what are called the deltas of where the points along those curves would move to render it as bold or thin or wide or narrow. And so by only storing the differences, you don't have to store the whole outline. It's a much more efficient format. So while it's not as small as a single font file, it's still much smaller than all of the individual ones taken separately. So if you look at something like Plex Sans from IBM, all of those separate files might be nearly a megabyte where 
two variable font files that contain all the widths and weights um, in the upright in one file, the italics in the other is like 230K. And that's for uh, really, really complete character sets. Like most people could use a subset of that and, and get it even smaller. So I've generally been seeing those file sizes around 50 to 100K for a typical Western language website need. Um, so that's that's not that different from loading, you know, once once you load three or four individual font files, you're probably loading more data than that. So it's an interesting win for performance, but it also then opens up the whole range of the typeface for us to use on the web through CSS. So it's almost like delivering the, the recipe rather than the meal, rather than here's the italic version, here's the bold version. It's like, here's the regular version. And to make it italic, you would do this. To make it bold, you would do that. And that reduces the file size that goes down over the wire. Yeah. Or in a way, it's it's more like it's giving you all the ingredients and then you can make any recipe you want um, because you could really go everywhere from, well, to go back to the Plex example from uh, 100 to 700 weight. Um, where 700 is sort of the typical bold, 400 would be kind of a, a, a normal weight, um, but then you have much lighter. So you could do really big and, and really fine line uh, headings or block quotes or, or you know, different um, items for like emphasis, um, and then be able to kind of modulate what you want bold to be at different sizes. So there, there's all kinds of different things that you can do for better typography, better user experience, um, all the while getting better performance, which is, that's the gatekeeper. So there's almost a, an infinite number of tweaks of, of steps mm-hmm. between what we would think of today as, as regular and bold. Right. Um, you actually got the ability to go anywhere, anywhere along that axis to, to tweak between the two. Right. And, you know, what I think is really exciting to me as, as somebody that studied graphic design um, and has looked fairly closely at, at print design for, for many years. The idea of what bold is um, really should change based on the size of the text that you're rendering. So by default, that 400 and 700 for normal and bold is kind of what the web defaults to. But in truth, the, you know, the only reason you're calling out bold is you want some emphasis. You want something to stand out. But the heavier the font gets at a small size, the harder it is to read. So it kind of fills in the little open spaces. And instead of using 700 for body copy, you know, when it's set at that, you know, roughly 16 pixel size or, or whatever we're using there, um, you could use maybe 550, 575, where you get enough emphasis, but the letter forms are still more open. And then as it gets bigger, you might use a heavier weight. But again, it's sort of your choice at that point. So, you know, by modulating that for getting the right level of emphasis, but still maintaining really good legibility, um, we have so much more flexibility. So I re- I'm really hoping that um, as these become more popular and more widely used, that we can start to teach people to be a little bit more nuanced with the way they use that range and actually get more expressive and, and also more readable at the same time. One thing I've noticed uh, implementing designs as a front-ender, uh, implementing designs that I've been given, is that um, different uh, 
color contrast combinations and and like light text on on a dark background versus dark text on light background yes the weights can look completely different mm-hmm. so presumably this this would help to even out and and sort of finesse the 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 sort of visual and the reading experience based on changes like that absolutely that's that's one of the things that i usually will showcase in workshops and talks is adding in support for that light mode media query so you can flip that contrast, um, but then you do want to do it in kind of a nuanced way. So um, depending on the typeface, it can end up looking really heavy or kind of spindly with a serif typeface. And sometimes you want to go a little heavier or a little lighter, um, but you then also tend to need to space the lettering out when you have it on a dark background um, or else the letter forms kind of bleed together. So there's, there's little things that you can adjust in the typography, the media query is drop dead simple. I mean, it's like, you know, two lines of code to add that to your site. And then it's what you do with that. Um, it's not necessarily just inverting the colors. Sometimes you need to adjust for contrast, but also tweak the type itself for better legibility. So presumably it's not just weight that can be varied in a variable font. There are other ways we can change how our font is displayed. Yeah. And it's actually, um, it's completely up to the type designer. And I think it's really good to uh, reinforce that this is not a free-for-all in the browser. The browser can only render what has been enabled in the font. So ultimately, it's the type designer who says the weight range is this to this. Um, you might have a width axis. And so it would you know, get a little bit narrower or a little bit wider. Um, but there's also the ability to have uh, these other what are called registered axes. There's width, weight, slant, italic, and optical size. And those are all sort of core things that are mapped to CSS properties. And slant allows an angle in between one and another, so upright. And I've actually seen ones with a reverse slant as well as a forward slant. Um, So that's totally open. Um, Italic is generally on or off, but not necessarily. And you can actually have, um, well, there are type designers that have experimented with changing the letter forms over gradually as you shift from normal to italic um, and sort of substituting letters along the way. Uh, so that's that's kind of an interesting thing. But then there's the ability to have custom axes. So the type designer can define whatever custom axis they want to vary. And um, so you've seen ones that add sort of a gravity spread um, drippiness and all kinds of like fun sort of um, twisting shapes or extending serifs, um, changing the height of the ascenders and descenders uh, on the lowercase letter forms, uh, changing whether or not there are serifs or not. So there's all kinds of things that you can do. Uh, it's really up to the imagination of the type designer. And I, I think we're only scratching the surface as to what what could realistically happen with with all of those things and it's all accessible through css yeah so all of these properties can be tweaked just through the normal css that you're delivering with your the rest of your design so what sort of things can we do in css to sort of trigger those changes is it just like we would do with a responsive layout where we'd have media queries to trigger that there's all kinds of ways that you can do it so um there's a small change that you have to make and, and I'm assuming that we'll provide a bunch of links to, to some stuff that will, will help people kind of play around with this stuff. I mean, I've, um, I've written a bunch, so hopefully that will help people out. And, uh, and then 
on uh, on the the use side, um, the font weight axis is just mapped to font weight. Um, so instead of saying regular bold, you just supply a number. Um, so you can change that with media queries. You can change it with JavaScript. Uh, you can kind of do whatever you want with that. Um, I've been using a technique called CSS locks um, that I learned from Tim Brown to basically use math, um, CSS custom properties and calculations to scale it from uh, once you hit a small breakpoint up to a large breakpoint. It kind of smoothly scales the, the font size and line height. And then you can also use a little bit of JavaScript to do the same thing with width or weight if you want to. The, the weight axis maps to font weight, the CSS property. Um, the width axis in the font will map to font stretch, and that's just expressed as a percentage. Um, I should note that people are not, uh, many type designers are not necessarily thinking through how this is expressed. So you might see weight ranges that do weird things like go from 400 to 650. Um, you still have to express it as a percent, but it works. It's fine. You just need to know what normal is, and all the, the fonts are documented. Um, and then uh, with anything other than those two, currently, there's a little bit uneven support in the implementation for slant and italic. A lot of those things you sort of need to fall back to using font variation settings and then you can supply several things at once. It's kind of like font feature settings. It's sort of a lower level syntax where you can supply a comma separated list of this four letter axis and a value comma, the next one comma, the next one. Um, the one thing that people need to keep in mind is that you, when you use font variation settings, you lose all the semantic understanding of that and you lose the fallback. So Font weight and font stretch are universally supported in all the browsers. You should definitely use those attributes. For anything else, you might use font variation settings. But the advantage to using font weight the way you normally would is if the variable font doesn't load, the browser can still do something with that. Um, whereas if it doesn't understand variable fonts or it doesn't load, if everything is in font variation settings, then you lose all of the styling information. Um, so that's just a little... A little side note there, just in terms of what is supported where. Um, but I should also say that it is supported in all the shipping browsers that you're likely to encounter in most circumstances. Um, IE 11 doesn't work, but you can deliver static web fonts and then use at supports in your CSS to change over to the variable fonts, and then you'll avoid any duplicate downloads of assets, and it works, works really well. I have that in production on several sites already. I think like like many of the sort of more modern web technologies we're seeing, it feels like variable fonts has been bubbling away quietly for a while. And it's only when it sort of finally boils over and we get support in, in browsers and people like yourself uh, making noise about it and letting everyone know that it's it's there. It can almost feel like to the standard designer or developer who's just day-to-day -day getting on with their job and not, not tracking all the latest technologies. It can seem like it's come out of nowhere. But I guess this has been bubbling away for quite a... I mean, you mentioned the the two slightly different implementations that we're now dealing with. Uh, this, so there's a, a sort of older and a newer standard for implementing? Well, it's actually not older and newer. It's it's They're both very intentional. Um, I'll come back to that in a second, because uh, it is really worth kind of understanding what the difference is with those. Um, but, you're, but you're right. So the, the format was introduced just over three years ago. Uh, it was in September of 2016. And 
we actually had the first working implementation in the nightly build of Safari three weeks later. Um, so it was it was pretty remarkably quick that we had working browsers. So Safari uh, was the first one to ship full support for it. Um, that was when I think it was when High Sierra came out um, in I don't know it was like Safari 12 or something like that. But um, uh, not that long after, we ended up getting support shipped in Firefox, Edge, and uh, and Chrome. Um, so we've actually had browser support for almost two years, um, but there weren't a ton of fonts. And, and so it's, there's been this sort of steady evolution. Um, the support for using them on the web has actually been there longer than anywhere else. I mean, technically, this format works on desktop OS as well. Um, so if you have a TTF format, you can install it in your desktop OS on Windows or Mac. And you can use it in any application. You can't always get to vary the axes um, the way you might want to play with them kind of infinitely. Um, but there are this notion of named instances embedded in that font file that map it back to what we're used to. So in Keynote, for example, there's not explicit support for variable fonts, but the format does work if there are things like in Plex sans again, um, condensed light. Like you, you'll you'll have those like normal regular you know, uh, regular bold narrow, etc. Would all be available in a drop down menu, just like installing the whole family. And then if you're in Illustrator or Photoshop or now InDesign that just shipped last week or Sketch that shipped a couple weeks ago, um, they all support variable fonts now so that you can then access all of the different axes and play with it to your heart's content. Um, but on the browser, that's where we've, we've had um, a lot more to work with. And, you know, taking a cue from your wife, I have been kind of beating this drum for a while, trying to get people to uh, be more aware of it. Um, and then thanks to the work that the Firefox team has done in, in creating developer tools, um, you know, with, with Jen Simmons kind of pushing that along. Um, we have incredible tools to work with on the browser that help us understand what the fonts are capable of. So you mentioned type designers and the font capabilities. Are there lots of fonts that are available? Well, a lot of people are doing it now. So the, probably the, the best and most comprehensive place to go look for them is Nick Sherman's site, vfonts.com, v-fonts.com. And and that's just a catalog site. Um, and, and it's it, it's rapidly becoming um, really, really big. And, uh, you know, there's more variable fonts coming out all the time now. Uh, there's not a huge number of open source ones, but if you search on GitHub for variable fonts, you actually will find a whole bunch of projects there. Um, but Google has uh, launched a beta of their new API with about a dozen variable fonts available there. Um, there's more coming from them. They just released Recursive um, at recursive.design, which is a fantastic uh, new typeface from Steven Nixon. The Plex variable uh, one is available. That's open source. And then there's tons of commercial ones. And then and the cool thing that about that is Monotype has released some pretty big ones, but it's lots of smaller foundries um, and individual designers that are just kind of leading the way 
in experimenting with this format. And, and I think that's really great for design and great for the web that we're seeing all of these like new designs um, from new designers or smaller designers that are kind of breaking this new ground. Cause I, I just, I like to see them succeed with this uh, because they've really taken the initiative to, to kind of put some great stuff out there. And are we seeing any sort of updating of existing fonts to be variable fonts to have, you know, families replaced by a, a single variable font? Is that happening at all? It is. Um, so the ones that Monotype released are uh, updates to some really classic typefaces. Um, FF Meta was one that I helped them launch by designing the um, the demo for that last year. Um, they've got that, uh, Univer, uh, Frutiger, um, Avenir, and uh, I think that's, I think those are the ones that they've released so far, those four. Um, and, and those are, are really kind of core classic brand typefaces. Um, and they're working on more. I know they have at least another half dozen or so that are kind of in various stages of production. Um, I know that, uh, Dalton Mog, which does a ton of custom typeface work for large corporations, has several really nice uh, variable fonts. I've been doing some work with Type Together. They also have several really great uh, typefaces. I know that, um, well, and, and I've I've shown at uh, at in at some of the conferences where I've spoken about these things um, that Adidas has their own two that they've been using um, for all of their brand work in print for almost two years now, uh, which is really, really remarkable stuff. Um, but also Mark Simonson is working on a variable version of Proxima Nova. Um, so that's kind of a big deal. That's been one of the best selling web fonts of all time. Um, so that's, it's happening. It's kind of happening in, in bits and pieces, kind of all up and down the scale. Um, but, you know, even something as simple as subscribing to Jonathan, uh, David Jonathan Ross font of the month club, will get you a variable font almost every month. I mean, he's been really incredible in the stuff that he's been putting out. And it's, you know, it's like $72 for the year or something like that. And um, and he's been putting out all kinds of really beautiful stuff. So it's, it's quite interesting then, because obviously with um, the capabilities of variable fonts, you could create new designs that, that make use of, uh, of these. But potentially there could be sites that are in production where there are variable font versions uh, now available where somebody could go back, revisit that, and replace out multiple font files with a new implementation based on a, a, a new variable font version. Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, so. I've been. Uh, that's some of the questions that I get fairly regularly. Um, and uh, recently, I was looking at a pretty large sports broadcasting website that uh, the development team asked me about about that same question. And I went and I looked, and sure enough, uh, for two of the typefaces they're using there are variable fonts available and a quick bit of research showed us that we could replace four instances of one typeface and three of the other with two variable font files and take over 70 percent of the file size away and five requests and so i mean it would be a clear win from a performance standpoint and for a really large-scale site when you look at removing you know almost 300k of of data download across millions of users that actually adds up to real dollar savings in bandwidth costs. So even from that purely practical standpoint, without rewriting any of their CSS, 
just replacing those fonts, it's already going to be a significant win for them in in performance, in page render time, and uh, and then in actual bandwidth costs for them. And in, in practical terms, is it as simple as it sounds, just swapping one out for the other? It can be. Um, and so, you know, I think the 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 perfect example of that is uh, something that that Google sort of casually let slip at uh, A Type I in September that they have started doing that with Oswald to the tune of 150 million times a day. That they just they made a variable font version of it and they just started serving it on websites that were using enough instances where it would yield a significant benefit. They didn't tell anybody. They didn't tell the site owners. Nobody had to do a thing um, because it, it had the right mapping of the weight axis so the defaults would just work. And 150 million times a day is a lot of font serving. And that's starting to give them some better insights into what would this landscape look like for them if they could start to switch over you know, the top five web fonts that they serve. And I'm, I'm assuming Open Sans is probably one of those. I know... Um, Lotto is probably in there, so Roboto. And and so if you look at those and look at what optimized versions of those might look like, then you can see that there are some very clear reasons why Google would be interested in that. Um, and then if you look on the other side, just the design space and, and um, how much truer to a brand voice a company could be if they're working with the whole range of their own you know, brand typeface rather than having to swap in different ones or or be more limited in their palette. And so there's there's really interesting things to to learn and explore on kind of both ends of that spectrum. It, it sounds like an exciting, brave new world of uh, of typography and opportunities for for doing type uh, in a more sort of um, sensitive and, and potentially more creative way uh, on the web than we've had been able to do before. Well, that, that's certainly what I hope. Um, I, I think that one of the biggest barriers to adoption with fonts on the web at, at all stages has been performance. So, you know, what happens? How long does it take to load? What does that mean to the render time on the page? Um, we've got those issues of that sort of flash of invisible text or or unstyled text, and you know, grappling with all of those things. Really, the, it comes back to how long does it take everything to get there, and how does the browser react to that? And I, there's lots of things we could do to mitigate some of those issues, but it really comes down to if we have a better font and a better way to serve it, then all of those issues become much less significant. And and so having that in place, then we get to be way more expressive and we can really try and push the design end of this and and try and be a little more creative because you you've written lately sort of expressing the feeling that perhaps the the web has drifted into a bit of a trap of designing like an article template per site maybe with some variations for a few different types of content but everyone's sort of drifting towards this uh, medium.com style of of single column of text very readable to my eyes nice nicely typeset um is, is that such a bad thing um i don't think it's bad i just think it could, it's going to get boring. I mean, when Medium came out, that was pretty novel. Uh, I mean, I think that um, one, you know, one column of, like you say, it was pretty nicely typeset copy. Um, 
it was it has nice and airy. It wasn't crowded. It wasn't cramped with sidebars and all this other stuff. Um, there's always going to be questions of business model and, and what will support that. And that's why a really beautiful redesign of, I think it was the Seattle times that Mike Montero's, uh, for mule design did a few years ago, absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, until it launched and then they had these like massive banners down either side of the column and it just kind of took away all of that white space. And, and it was a real shame. And, and, I understand that, you know, companies have to make money. It just, there are, you know, there are ramifications to that. So it would be wonderful to have that be one option to have that nice, clean layout, but it shouldn't be the only one. You know, we have all these capabilities in CSS that allow us to do really interesting things with margins and layout. I mean, it's not even just, the fact that we have grid now, but the fact that we can do calculations in the browser in CSS allows us to do a lot more interesting stuff. And you layer in with that the ability to be much more expressive with type, then we could start to look at what they do in magazines. Um, you know, Vanity Fair doesn't have one article template. They have six or seven or eight. Um, and, and if you really look at how they lay those things out, there's a tremendous amount of variability, but it is playing within a system. And so when we create a design system for our website, instead of stopping at just one layout, we have a relatively easy way to build some switches into our content management systems. Most of them support a fair amount of flexibility. There's no reason why we couldn't give people a choice. I want to use layout one, two, three, four, five, six. And, and that's going to introduce different margins, different offsets, um, maybe introducing the ability to create some columns. You know, there's lots of different things that we could do that would make for a much more interesting web. And and I think that type can play a really big part in that. So uh, you think, um, is, is type our savior when it comes to adding a bit more personality back back to the web? Well, I think it can be. You know, I, I think we've had this long evolution um, on the web towards better usability. But I think that one of the, one of the casualties there is when all we're ever concerned about is that utilitarian, is it usable approach? Is it, that tends to beat out personality. And then when every single website is again, like we had web fonts come along and that created a, a new level of expressiveness that we didn't have before. And then all of a sudden, you know, we could, uh, and displays got better. So, you know, serifs came back into the mix. So, you know, we could use those again on the web. And um, and these things added some life. And then we've kind of optimized back to everybody using one or two sans serifs. So we're not, you know, it's, it's open sans or it's Roboto or, uh, or Oswald or whatever. And, and, you know, we're kind of back to the same thing where there are tons of really good, really readable typefaces. We haven't really taught this current generation of UX designers who are often the ones driving a lot of this, anything about typography, anything about how expressive it can be, how much it can alter the mood and the tone. And um, so 
we have a huge number of people that are dictating the design direction of things on the web who have ideas about type that are perhaps not as well informed as somebody who studied graphic design and those notions of readability. And we need to bring those things together. It's not one or the other. It's an and. It needs to be. I suppose when we talk about personality uh, and about sort of tone and mood, from a business point of view, often what we're talking about is aspects of a brand. So in in making everything look the same, are we losing uh, the ability to communicate a brand to, to customers? Well, I think absolutely. I think, and that's, I mean, not to dive into politics, but I mean, I think the whole, uh, one of the major issues that like we certainly experienced in the US, and, and I'm sure it's not that different than what happened in the UK over the last few years, when all the news is consumed through a single platform and everything looks the same, there's no distinction of voice. So it's something like 75% of adults in the US say that they get a significant portion of their news from Facebook. I mean, let's set aside just how just generally horrifying that is, but but you know, given that everything is presented uniformly, there's no difference between an article from the Guardian, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and you know, Joe's right-wing news. I I mean like whatever like it's all presented exactly the same. And when we see that logo, that type style, you know, that's like the Guardian is so characteristic. The the Wall Street Journal is so characteristic. Like we know, we recognize instantly when we see it, even just a headline, we know where that came from. And then there's this automatic association with that brand and that authenticity. And when you strip all of that away, you're left with, okay, I'm going to evaluate this on a headline. And then it's down to who wrote a better headline. And that's not a lot to go on. So, you know, I think that we have lost a tremendous amount. And if you look at what Apple News Plus is trying to do, um, there are some efforts on a part of a few companies to try and reintroduce that. Um, Blendle did a really interesting job of that um, in uh, in Europe. They launched in the U.S., but I'm not really sure they were ever really that successful. That was a, a platform that would allow you to subscribe and see content from all these different top-level newspapers and publications, and it would always be in their own design. So that was a really kind of an interesting approach there. It was always preserving the brand voice, that authenticity and that um, that authority that would go along with that news. And it really helped provide some cues for you as a reader, you know, to kind of evaluate what you're what you're reading. Um, and, and I think that's important. I, I think it's not something to be taken lightly. I think thinking back to RSS readers in, in days gone past, these, the same sort of problems we were seeing then where every, all, everyone's content was being just distributed via RSS and appearing in a reader in a identical format, identical layout. And I think you do, you do lose something of the, um, of the personality and the voice. Yeah, it's, it's true. And, and I don't think that's an entirely solvable problem because, you know, I think if you, if you can imagine an RSS reader with a different typeface for every headline, like it would be crazy. Like I, you know, there's a reason why that that doesn't work that well, but, but there has to be some middle ground. 
and and I type does play a role in that. And and certainly once you get back to the website, there is that sort of instant recognizability that um, that that will help that experience stand apart from seeing it anywhere else. So say I'm a, a designer, I'm working in a small agency, I'm turning out designs for all sorts of different clients. I look at my work, uh, I think, you know, this is all, this is all good. This is readable, but it's got no personality in it. Where, where do I start to actually put back some interest, some excitement, uh, and not just lean on this sort of uniform UX driven layout that, uh, that I, I've sort of conditioned myself to use? Well, I think, I, I think the thing to do is uh, if you've never, if you've never studied typography, um, you you're, haven't necessarily kind of trained your eyes to see what the differences are in one typeface to another. Um, so, and, and even when you have studied graphic design, like you have to remind yourself of these things all the time. So I think oftentimes what I'll recommend, um, and actually I wrote about this a few weeks ago because I kept getting asked, like, where do you start? Um, and I made a list of books um, that I think are really helpful. So something like Ellen Lupton's uh, book, Thinking with Type, is a fantastic introduction to looking at type and seeing it. Um, Eric Speakerman's book, um, Stop Stealing Sheep, is is a is a great one. Although I think at the moment it's out of print. Um, I think that I think that he might be working on another edition. But that that's so. If you find that one, that's that's a good one as well. And those will help introduce you to the terminology. Um, and and understanding what the differences are between the different styles of text. Um, and then once you have that basic introduction, it gives you a better frame of reference when you look at other websites, getting a sense of like, why does this one feel warmer than that one? You know, what are the combinations of type? What are the characteristics? And then you can, as a, you know, as, as a web developer, often does or web designer often does you inspect an element see what the typeface is that it's that's being used there and that can start to help build a palette of ones that you become familiar with and very often designers do hone in on a few that they get to know well and they tend to use them on a lot of different projects Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing it's certainly better now if you're working with a variable font and you can be that much more varied and so you can decide that on this on this website, this is what I want to call normal, and this is the the width that I want to use and and the other aspects of it. So even using the same typeface across websites because you have access to the full range of characteristics, it could still look quite different. So I think there's a, a lot of um, a lot of reading to be done, and I'm sure we'll add uh, some links to the show notes of uh, all the uh, the excellent uh, articles you've uh, you've written up and and some um, references to these books uh, and what have you, because um, I think there's uh, there's so much to learn. I think we've always always got to be learning with these things. That the learning never ends. It's it's true, it is true, and and that's um, that is something that I've enjoyed immensely. When I was, when I started writing this newsletter, um, every week when I'm writing it, I'm writing it. I'm I'm reading more of the specs i'm reading more of um of what other people have discovered and written um you know there's tremendously knowledgeable folks out there um you know rich rudder for instance from from clear left 
wrote a fantastic book called Web Typography. He was one of the founders of FontDeck, which was, you know, like one of the very first services to to launch. Um, he's always been kind of the most scholarly of, of authors about this stuff. I mean, he's really tremendously thoughtful in the way he puts those things together. Um, but there's, there's a bunch of people doing really interesting stuff. And uh, that has kind of forced me to kind of seek and you know, keep up with what other people are doing all the time, which is really tr- fantastic. Is there anything in particular that you've been learning lately? Um, the stuff, you know, the stuff that I've been learning the most is actually like the corners of the specs. And that's, you know, I think um, it's something that, uh, you know, I, I mean, again, is I probably the biggest influence for me on that is, is probably Rachel um, that, you know, she's always talking about like, well, if you actually read what's written here, there's actually really good stuff to to know. And so um, in reading exactly what the specs are, there's a tremendous amount of great typographic control that is available to us. Um, and, and then layering into that different things like mixed blend modes and CSS and um, it, learning more about different size units and how they interact together and learning how to use and where you can use CSS custom properties. And, you know, I just keep, um, I I keep reading little bits more and more and then kind of compare that to what the browsers are doing. And it really has been a tremendous experience for me in in what I've been learning every week. Um, even having been doing this stuff for 25 years, it's still, um, there's still like a new gem every time I dig into one of these things. That's fantastic. Thank you. So if, if you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Jason or perhaps hire him to work with you on your web typography challenges, you can follow him on Twitter where he's at jparmental or find his website at rwt.io where you can also find the web typography newsletter to sign up to. So thanks for talking to us today, Jason. Do you have any parting words? Yeah, experiment. Um, I mean, this there's lots of open source stuff to play with. And I think once people get this in their hands and get familiar with it, that I think it will, they'll start to see more and more how much fun they can have with this stuff and, and, it, and how much more expressive they can be. Um, and I think we, it was talking to the design director at the Wall Street Journal, actually on Friday, um, I was in talking to their design team and, and we were talking about like, it's great that you have a design system that that standardizes things, but it's then, you know, like any good design where you break that rule, where that's where the exciting things really happen. So we've gotten like this necessary evolution of like getting really good at the system. Now I've got to break it some, and that's when we can get exciting again. So that's, that's my break the rules. That's, that's my best advice. I think. This is smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at SmashingMag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. <laughs> <laughs>